COVID, George Floyd, racism, inflation, political polarization, Joe Biden, Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court, declining church attendance, seminaries closing their doors, record percentages of pastors thinking about quitting, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, church scandals, worship wars, culture wars, old Christians staying home, young Christians deconstructing. If you hold the traditional sexual ethics, you are thought in many circles to be immoral. Some believe Christian nationalism is surging. Housing prices are impossible. Young staff unfindable. Volunteers unrecruitable. Church campuses unbuildable. Property unaffordable. This is a great time to be in ministry. <laughs> this was the opening line for John Ortberg. I was at a pastor's conference two weeks ago. We all chuckled and kind of felt a sense of relief. We're not the only ones feeling the pressure of doing ministry in today's world. And this is why I really, really love First Peter, because I feel like this is kind of the same sentiment. As you guys are walking through First Peter, the promise isn't everything's going to be fixed. The problem is there is a Savior in the midst of the storm. Amen? And this is Peter's disposition in many ways, and I was really grateful for that pastor's conference just a couple weeks ago. It gave me a lot of hope because it wasn't full of lies saying it will all get better. It might actually get worse. There might be more obstacles along the way. There might be yet another crisis that you and I have to face. And so we must root our faith and hope in something much deeper than just hoping all of the pain going away. And I think in many ways, the disposition the Apostle Peter has in this letter is the following. It's this truth. Jesus doesn't promise to lower the hostility around us. Instead, he invites us to increase our maturity within us. I encourage you guys, by the way, hi, I'm Trey. It's, I told uh, Scott, if I come one more time this year, I think I'm technically on staff. And so, love you guys, so grateful to be here. But Peter here is constantly telling them, one of the biggest phrases you'll see throughout this book as you guys go through it is, be alert and of sober mind. In chapter 5, it says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He's saying the Christian life is a fight, but man, it's worth it. And so this, the whole book is saying, let Jesus do the work of instilling within you the maturity that can withstand all hostility, that can build a church in the midst of a hostile world. And so specifically for our time today, I'd love for you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm picking up where Pastor Scott left off. And this call to maturity is a beautiful invitation that we see in 1 Peter chapter 2 in the first 10 verses. Let me give you the big idea for today. The church, we, we are a community built on Christ in a culture built on crisis. Do you feel that? It seems like we just live for one crisis to the next. Philip Reap, he was a man who lived in the 1900s. He almost perfectly predicted the problems you and I would face today in the 21st century. One phrase that he coined I find really helpful is the therapeutic self. Anybody heard of this before? It's this idea that our whole life now is just focused on, on having as much convenience and comfort as possible. Our society is more and more fragile as a result because we're not doing anything for the sake of our neighbor. We're just doing everything for the sake of self. He also described, though, Philip Reef said that our culture is becoming more and more an anti-culture. 
which is a pretty fascinating idea, and I think you and I would agree this is what we're in today. Many are saying we are the first civilization in history that's building a foundation not on what we are for, but on what we are against. This is why we live from one crisis to the next. We are a people with tabloids, scandals, and rumors. We have more joy tearing people down than building people up. In fact, our heroes now are those who no longer build. They are the critics who destroy. And so to put simply, I don't think you need convincing, we are in a culture today built on crisis. The news cycle depends on it. Social media algorithms demand it. And our souls are getting sucked into it. But thankfully, we have Peter. And Peter here has an answer for us inspired by the word of God. Look even with me at just the first verse I'm reading from the CSB today. It says this, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Peter here is what? Describing what a culture looks like built on crisis. Malice, what does that mean? Malice is a desire to harm or to hurt somebody. He says, rid yourself of that. Deceit. Deceit is when you, you're setting a bait on a trap. It's to act insincerely. It's, it's to find somebody and, and, and to lie to them in order for your own selfish gain. Hypocrisy is simply pretending to be somebody you are not. Today, the culture, we reward that sort of behavior. But then you have envy. Envy is not just to want what somebody else has. Like, oh, I also want that. Envy says, no, I want what you have. I think I deserve what you have. I should take it from you, and you be in my situation. And then you have slander. Peter here is talking to the church. He's saying, rid yourself. This is how the culture is. But we are on a better foundation. What is slander? Slander is simply backbiting, gossiping, talking bad behind somebody's back. And it's inevitable if you live in this culture, if your life is built on this culture of crisis, your life will be defined by malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. But Peter's saying we have a more sure foundation. We have something better on offer because of what Christ has done for us. Amen? Look at 1 Peter 2. It says, Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. By the way, this, I believe this phrase, newborn infants, is, is not even kind of a slight against the church. Some people interpret this passage of saying, okay, they're really young in the faith, and so they have to go really slow. Paul makes a similar point where I think he is addressing the maturity. Here in this context, though, he's saying, you know how a baby cannot live without milk? You and I, we cannot live without the Word of God. Amen? This is the foundation we're build, building our life on. Like a deer pants for water, like a baby desires milk, you and I are to crave the Word of God. And he says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. We have here in this passage, he is quoting Psalm 34. If you were to ever memorize a psalm, 34 would be, I, I would hope that that would be one of the first that you would try to memorize. He's hoping, because this is a lot of people who know their Old Testament, he's hoping for us to recall 34, 8 through 10. Look at verse 8. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
This is the same line Peter just used. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him? You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Peter is saying, just like the psalmist is saying, instead of malice, envy, bitterness, all of this culture of crisis, we need to build our church on Christ, our life on Christ. And when we do that, we will lack, we will not lack any good thing. Let's keep going verse by verse here. Verse 4, we, let's continue. As you come to him, this is being Jesus, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. I think this line here is, is actually for the sake of Peter. I don't know if you feel this, but sometimes in a culture that's built on crisis and not on Christ anymore, you kind of feel rejected, right? You feel like you're the minority crew. You, you feel like your beliefs are not accepted. And he's saying, okay, just as you are not accepted by people, Jesus himself was rejected as well, but he was chosen honored and accepted by God, insinuating to us, this is our hope. Our, the good news of Jesus is that God himself approves us, and if we have his approval, what other approval do we need? Verse 5, you yourselves as living stones, underline that phrase, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now this imagery here is groundbreaking for the time it was written. What he's trying to say is there's no longer a need for a temple, an altar, or a priest, that because of what Jesus has done 2,000 years ago, we have access to God wherever we are. This was groundbreaking for them because this is the first religion ever to not have a temple, to not have an altar. But because of the gospel, the presence of God is with us wherever we go. And so I think for us, when we're reading this passage, it's not too hard to believe that we're a spiritual house. Amen? It's not too hard for us to understand that we don't have to go to a temple to encounter the presence of God. But I think another harder element of this passage that I want us to understand here is really hard for us to get what Peter's also insinuating in this text is that you and I cannot live outside of a community of fellow Jesus followers. We have, again, no problem believing we don't have to go to a temple. We have a lot of problems when somebody says, you need the church. Do I really need the church? And I understand this is the crew not to convince. You're at church, bravo. But there's something to that we have to lean into. Why is this so hard for us? Our culture is in crisis. Why? Because we believe in limited commitments and maximum individualism. We can run right past this verse and not understand what Peter is implying here. We are a temple. Us, the spiritual house. And I rely on you, and you rely on her, and she relies on him. We are built together. Somebody, I, I was listening to a sermon, actually, this is what pastors do, on the way up here. I have a two and a half hour drive to get here without coffee. Praise the Lord. God is good somehow, right? And so he was actually talking about limited commitments. He says, a lot of us, we like to complain about parenting because it's the last relationship that we all agree you can't just run away from. In every other relationship in today's world, you can just say, I'm out. We're done. 
this marriage is done, this friendship is done, this relationship with my church is done, but kids, thankfully, as a society, we still look down on, on you if you just kind of run away from your children, which I suggest do at least two weekends a year, right? That's why you need to have, hey, grandparents in the room, bless us, please, all right? But this idea of limited commitments and maximum individualism makes this passage so difficult to believe. I want us to see two imageries here of Peter talking about you and I being a spiritual house. I think this has implications for us as a universal church. So us as a church here, but also across the world, we are built together. But I think this also has implications for a local church, understanding you and I are supposed to be built together. The first imagery I want us to see, like stones, we cannot leave. What happens to a structure when you begin to take out the stones? The whole thing begins to crumble. Now, let me be clear. If you have been abused in a situation, there are certainly other scenarios where you do need to leave for the sake of your family. But I think we could all agree some of us leave for the silliest of things. I'm a pastor. I hate it. I offend people all the time. And I usually never mean to. Sometimes I do. But it's always so difficult. And they leave without, like, let me clarify, right? But like stones, this imagery of a spiritual house, friends, you and I, we are called to understand we have to stick this thing out. There are blessings on the other side of conflict. If we just stick through it together, we can be stronger. The second element I think we hope to see here in this spiritual house and us being living stones is like stones, saints are stacked above and below us. See, those below us, and the world would say those below us are worse than us, but in the gospel, it says those below us are more mature than us. Those below us in the structure are supporting us. They're the ones in this church that are praying for you, that are teaching you the gospel, that are patient with you and helping you understand the walk of life that Jesus has called us to. See, some of us, and I hope and pray, I think all of us can begin to think of names you and I are standing on the shoulders of because of their sacrifice, because of how much they poured into you. I'm a fourth generation pastor, so my first thought is to think about my rich lineage of, of family members who have gone before me, and it is an honor to stand on their shoulders. But also, there's saints stacked above us. No matter who you are today, I believe there are people in your life that look up to you. And you are the ones supporting them. They're on top of you, which sometimes means they feel like a burden. Amen? They sometimes get heavy. But you have the joy of serving them, of teaching them, of loving them. See, I think the point, and I'll move on, the church is being built. Not stone upon stone or brick upon brick, but upon Christian upon Christian. And praise God for those who have gone before us. And praise God that there will be saints coming after us. This quote here by Edmund Clowney, he was giving a, a commentary on this passage. I thought this was a really beautiful way to put it. He says, God's architecture is biological. His house grows as new stones are added but also as the stones in place are perfected. The church is this idea that we're gaining in new saints, but not only that, the saints who are here, our stones are being chiseled. We're walking into the purpose more and more of what God has created us to be. You guys still with me? Now, this isn't just a community built on 
principles. No, the church is built on a person. Amen? And his name is Jesus. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, For it stands in Scripture, so Paul, uh, Peter here, excuse me, is quoting a lot of the Old Testament. He says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. You ever heard that word before? Cornerstone at Cornerstone Church. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Peter here is quoting Isaiah 28, verses 16. He goes on to quote another passage in Psalm 118. He says, So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving. So he's saying there's a great life. There is a spiritual house for those who built their life on Christ. But for those who built their life on crisis, what is the result? The stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. And a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. This is Isaiah 8, verse 4. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. Now, this is a lot here. And in some ways, I, I feel really bad for being the one. Pa uh, Pastor Scott let me pick whatever passage in this series, and I thought this is an amazing passage. And I felt bad, because it's like Cornerstone. Like, what a great time for Scott to be like, this is why we're called Cornerstone. So my apologies, Pastor Scott. Thanks for letting me take it. But look, the whole Bible is pointing to the person and work of Jesus. He is saying, without Jesus, we are nothing. Without Jesus, your life will fall apart. Without Jesus, your life will end in death and destruction. So part of this passage is, what a beautiful invitation. Christ is the cornerstone. Build your life on him. At the same time, he's saying, but if you reject him, look at the options he's saying here. Cornerstone or gravestone. Christ is the cornerstone, but if you reject him, whatever other cornerstone you choose will eventually be your gravestone. It leads to death. It leads to stumbling. It leads to a crushing. A lot of us believe this when it comes to addictions, right? We can see, okay, somebody's building their life on some sort of substance. It has this illusion that it will bless you and help you and give you the feelings that you want. But of course, you do it long enough, you begin to lose everything around you. Right? What looked like a cornerstone turned into your gravestone. Cornerstone is the thing you hope for when all other hope is lost. What, when, when everything is going bad, when you're in a complete crisis, what or who do you run to? And he's saying, run to Christ and Christ alone. But culture today, a culture in crisis, will give you a lot of cornerstones that are actually gravestones. Allow me to introduce to you just a few but I hope and pray you kind of process this in your own life because there are a there is plenty of other idols to think of. A culture built on crisis wants to tell you that money is the cornerstone. Anybody feel this? This thing called recession coming, right? Isn't it terrifying? When I was 16, it was the last recession, and I kind of felt it, but I was also just 16. This one, I'm like, oh no, what do I do, right? I'm looking up all the YouTube videos, trying to study the stock market, of which I don't have any stocks anyways, because I'm broke. But anyways, I want to be invested, figuring out what's going on. I feel this, and it's this idea that, man, if you have the right amount of money, you will be saved from the heartache and loss that is coming our way. But what happens if you put all your hope in money? Money is the gra gravestone of never having enough. Some of us who have had money in this room, you know that. 
How much money do you need? What's the famous line? Just a little bit more. In fact, studies show there's a certain point where the more, more money you make, the more depressed you get. Because you thought, I'm supposed to be happy. I have everything I need, and I'm even more miserable now, and it's terrifying. Some of us who are poor, we put our hope that one day we'll be rich. And so we have hope knowing, yeah, life's not good now because I don't have the money. That is one cornerstone that a lot of us fall into, and instead it labels itself as a cornerstone, but really it is a gravestone. Let me think of a couple more. Performance. This is probably the one I struggle with the most. I mean, after all, every Sunday I come up on a stage and quote-unquote perform. Performance is the gravestone of never doing enough. Performance has this lie. It will save you from disapproval. If you perform hard enough or good enough, you will be loved and approved, and you will no longer be lonely. And the idea is, guess what? For a while, you might be able to perform. It might, be, it might seem like a good cornerstone, but eventually, somebody better comes. Eventually, your body begins to break. I know Pastor Sky said that a couple weeks ago. He's like, hi, everybody, you're going to die. You're going to go from dust to dust. Welcome to church. I thought, what a good encourager. He's so, what a gift. Performance. Maybe for you it's power. We think power is a cornerstone today because, man, if we have enough power, we'll be saved from all threats. If we have enough power, people will respect us. But the reality is power becomes a gravestone of never being enough. You always feel weak when your cornerstone is power. You're always deep down afraid when you think it's all about being the strongest person in the room. Cornerstone or gravestone? Which one will you pick? As I was studying this passage, I realized how much Christ I believed through and through Christ is my cornerstone, but I've been looking at other gravestones in my life. I can tell this because, because of verse 1. Verse 1, again, says, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. If I can be honest with you just for a few moments, I don't really struggle with malice or deceit or hypocrisy. I like to just be who I am and tell you who that is. But in recent days, I have given myself into the gravestone of envy and slander. Envy for me, I, I see other pastors on their journey towards success, and I get mad because I think it should be me that gets those things. I just wrote a book. I'm not a top seller, all right? So you get a little bit envious of those who are, but also slander. I was on the phone with one of my mentors the other day, and I just said such a rude thing about a group of people, and I had no reason to. It gave no context to the conversation, and it really, because this guy is my mentor, I knew he would call me out, so I did the smart thing and called myself out first and said, I'm so sorry. I did this, this, this. He said, oh, sorry, Trey. You cut out. What did you say? I thought, oh, no, I could have avoided this whole thing. He goes, I literally didn't hear you for 15 seconds. I said, well, then let's move on, you know? But then I thought, I hung up the phone and thought, why did I, I'm a nice person. Why did I slander that group of people? They didn't do anything to me. So I started kind of processing and thinking, I, oh my gosh, I, I think I'm hurting. I think my shame is producing contempt. Why do I have shame? 
I kind of shared this story last time I was with you, and I hate to share kind of a similar story again because you do think this is just my whole life, but whatever. I get to drive later. You'll forget me. I'll forget you. Um, so <laughs> I really have forgotten all of your names. Uh, a few months ago, I think about seven months ago now, I was offered a dream job in California. I actually consulted your pastor, Pastor Scott, on some wisdom on what to look for. I mean, this was the dream job for every pastor, especially if you're 30, like me. It was a salary I never thought I would ever get. Uh, this building had 40 acres paid off. The whole building was paid off. It had 125,000 square foot of property, of building. It was close to the beach, and most importantly, forgive me, but I have problems. It was really close to Disneyland, and so my family loved it. So we were in California. I'm Baptist, so what we do is we preach in view of a call, which is very stressful and totally not realistic because you just share your best sermon ever. And then the next week, it's not nearly as good as that one, but you already voted me in. Like, that's the whole idea of preaching in view of a call. And so we were there, got there a few days early to meet the staff, and there's no point in sharing all the details, but essentially a lot of other factors came to play. I had already announced to my church back home that I was leaving they already announced to this church I was preaching that Sunday and Saturday. I got my family in the car and we drove back to Arizona and I was no longer going to preach in view of a call. Mind you, that Sunday was my 30th birthday. Worst birthday ever. They didn't let me preach until I was 30 because they thought it'd be way cooler to say a pastor in his 30s versus a pastor who's 29. So that my birthday was supposed to be the day that I preach and essentially I was told that I wasn't the right fit of which I knew I just thought they wanted a different fit now right and so I had a lot of moments of rejection I was embarrassed I had to go back to church that next day at my home church that I planted and say will you take me back and they did praise the Lord but it hurt it was embarrassing just yesterday, somebody called and said, hey, remember that really stupid thing you did six months ago where you told your whole church you were leaving and then you didn't? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. I don't want to. You know, I'm done with that story. Rejection. My life was on a gravestone of crisis, and it was hurting. To make matters worse, and I'm done with this pity party, but let me just do one more, because I don't want to share it with my church family. It's why like, you're my therapist, not them. To make matters worse, I, re I released a book about a month ago, and um, right before I released it, I was so proud, I sent it to another one of my mentors, and he essentially told me, Trey, don't publish the book. I thought, that's not how Amazon works. I already submitted the book. Long story short, it was a miscommunication. I think he thought it was supposed to be more academic, and that's not me. And it was just kind of a miscommunication, but it hurt me deeply. Somebody I looked up to very, very highly told me, Trey, what you did was not enough. And so I have been kind of taking this. Honestly, I didn't know this until I studied this passage for you this week. Wow, I am having envy, but I'm having slander. I am tempted to talk bad about that mentor now. I am tempted to talk bad about that church in California, and I have no reason to. Why am I doing those sorts of things? Because my hope is built on something less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And it's been a wake-up call for me. See, Peter here is writing to rejected Christians who've been run from their homes, 
They're tired of the persecution. They feel misunderstood and rejected. And I love the message Peter's saying. He's not saying, don't worry, the hostility is going away in seven months. It's going to be great. Just hold on. There's an election coming or whatever, right? Some sort of promise. That's not him at all. He's saying, no, no, no. It's going to get worse. But God loves you. It's going to get worse. But there is a church to rally around you. And that church might get worse for a while. And they might annoy you, but you can't leave them. Welcome to Christianity. This is what he's saying. He's saying, look, man's rejection is never going to go away. Crisis after crisis, this is what life is. But just how man's rejection won't go away in your life, neither will God's affection for you. Build your hope on nothing less than his blood and his righteousness, his love for you. Write this down. This is a major takeaway. Your vision of God's love determines the version of your hope. Peter knows life's going to get harder and harder. But with that, Christ's love grows deeper and deeper. Hear me. In Christ you are loved. In Christ you are approved. In Christ you are treasured. God loves you. And hear me, God even likes you. This is good news. If you don't believe me, let's look at verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, but you are a chosen race. What does a chosen race mean? It means God chose you, not the other way around. So it's all grace. It's not like you earned it. That's pretty amazing. A royal priesthood. Both of these chosen and, and royal priesthood are a bit humbling because first of all you're chosen so it's not anything you did it's everything how god is but that's what makes you special but also royal priesthood what he's saying is priests what do they do they don't come to be served but they come to serve he's saying this is the hope you have and it's really humbling god's grace for you is why you were picked and what were you picked for to serve everybody around you but then the next two give us an enormous confidence first two very humbling second very encouraging, very, all of it's encouraging, but very confident building, a holy nation. Holy means set apart, distinct. We are something different than this world has ever seen. Not only that, a people for his own possession. Some translations say God's treasured people. Talk about confidence. If God is for me, who can be against me? He's saying, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Man, in a culture built on crisis, you and I, our lives can be built on Christ. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. What a journey. I want to give us, as we close, two next steps for us to apply this passage. What I love about your church is you always make sure what's the next step. How can I practice the word? That's incredible. I've been inspired by it. I think the most application is from the two verses that we began with. So number one, according to verse one, I want you to do this this week. Confess where you have been living from a place of hurt. Why would we have malice, deceit, envy, slander, hypocrisy? Because we've been hurt. We're trying to put up another image in order to be loved. Confess where you've been hurt. Rid yourself. So I want you to think through some of these questions. Is there anybody you don't wish God's best for? Why? 
might be because they've hurt you. Are you acting one way in front of someone and another behind their back? Ask those questions, why are you doing this? Are you envious of others' success and gifts and relationships? Don't project your hurt onto them. Just because you're hurt doesn't mean they can't have a good life. Do you find yourself criticizing other people? See, Paul, Peter here is saying, look, some of this comes from a place of hurt and emptiness, but the gospel, this gospel of being chosen, of being loved, of having a cornerstone of Christ, we no longer have to operate from hurt. In fact, we go to Christ with our hurt, and he transforms that into a spirit of love and joy and peace. Where in your life do you need to let God love you? Get honest about your hurt. And let Christ love you at that spot. The second application is clear from verse 2. Feast on the word of God every day this week. Crave it like a newborn infant craves after milk. Let the word of Christ fill you up this week. If you don't know where to start, I encourage you, how about you read 1 Peter this week? One chapter per day. And just wrestle with it. And allow God to speak to you through it. And I know when I approach the scriptures, I say, God, today I don't really want to read, but I know I need it. Would you transform my soul? Would you make me crave after your word? Would you give me the word that I need to hear? Cornerstone or gravestone? I pray that you put your hope in Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your kindness and your mercy. Thank you, Jesus, that we are a chosen race, those who put our faith and trust in you, Jesus. I pray for those in the room who haven't made Christ their cornerstone. Oh God, may we just see the invitations on offer today to put our hope completely on you and you alone. But God, I pray for those hurting in the room hurt from a church, hurt from a family member, hurt from failed opportunities. And God, I just pray that you would encourage them in this moment, that you want to love them in the midst of this, that hurt doesn't have to be their future. God, that suffering can be just for a moment, but First Peter says later on, but eventually, God, you yourself will restore us and make us strong, firm, and steadfast. God, would you make this church cornerstone church? Because of you, Christ, may we be strong, firm, and steadfast in a culture built on Christ. May we be built on Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.